You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. My name is Mark. I'm one of the leaders here. Uh, I'm going to be talking to us uh, about uh, growing in compassion, and it's the last one of the series. And growing in compassion is something that is really important to us as a leadership team and as a church. Why is that? Because as Christians, you and I know, don't we, that we have been subject to the amazing compassion of God. We should be the most grateful people for God's extraordinary compassion. And if that's the case, why wouldn't we want to be compassionate to those around us? Uh, And I'm not saying, please don't think this, that we're not a compassionate church already. I was here last night, uh, and Brian Anstey and his team were just about to take 50 meals or so, 40 meals down to uh, some of the most needy people in our town as part of the soup kitchen. And I thought, great, that is an act of compassion. And there's many acts of compassion going on around this church through our programs and other things. So it's not like we're not a compassionate church. I think we are. But what I want to stir us with this morning is to be even more compassionate than that. Because God is the most compassionate, the most merciful, the most loving being you could ever imagine. And why wouldn't we want to be like him? As his people, we want to reflect the character of God. So we want to grow in compassion. Uh, if, you look up the, if you look up the definition of compassion, it says something really strong. It says suffering with someone. Suffering with someone. It's not just sympathy. It's actually feeling something deep inside which says, man, I need to respond to this. You could say it's a deep and costly response to the needs of others. And there are places in the scripture where Jesus uh, moved with compassion, does certain things. Uh, Matthew 15, he sees the crowd, 4,000 of them. They've been with him for three days. Uh, They've had nothing to eat. And he says, I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint. And what is his response? His response was to feed them. He didn't have much resources, but he prayed. A miracle happened, and they were fed. In other words, his compassion led to action. And that's my first point. Compassion leads to action. There's another example in Luke 7. This is um, in the town of Nain. And this lady, she's a widow. She's lost her husband, Uh, And now she's lost her son. And in first century Palestine, that meant destitution. If you haven't got a male in the household, your chances of having anything material in this life are very, very small. So here she is. She's lost her husband. She's lost uh, uh, her son. Uh, A considerable crowd, it says, from the town was with her. And the Lord had compassion on her. And he went up to the body of the young man and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Don't you love that? Here he is. I'll give him back to you. Isn't that wonderful? An extraordinary miracle. So compassion leads to action. There are also some examples in in, in Scripture where Jesus was so moved with compassion that he wept. And I'm sure Jesus wept quite a lot, actually, because he was compassionate. 
a compassionate guy. But there are a couple of examples that uh, we read about. And one is John 11.35, the shortest verse in the Bible. And we know the story, probably, don't we, if we're familiar with the New Testament. Uh, Jesus had this friend called Lazarus, good friend, uh, and he was ill. And his sisters go to Jesus and say, uh, please come quickly, he's, 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 he's going to die. And Jesus was delayed, and when he got there, uh, Lazarus had already been dead three or four days Uh, And the sisters were distraught, the friends were distraught. And it says, when Jesus saw her, that's uh, Mary, his sister, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. This is the extent of his compassion. You know, I say compassion is a strong word. You feel it in your gut. And here we see it written down. Jesus felt it in his gut. He was greatly troubled. And, of course, he, we know the story, He prays for Lazarus. He's raised from the dead. And it has a massive impact all over the the area, not surprisingly. So we could say that compassion is motivation to act, coming from a deep, profound, and emotional response to the needs of others, a costly identification with the needs of others. And of course, you know, as we've seen in that story, Jesus knows about compassion. And of course Jesus knows about compassion because... Although he was in very nature God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, did he? But he emptied himself, and he became, he was found in human form, and he became a servant, and he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and given him the name above every name, that's at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? But see there, the beginning of that, he did not account equality with God, something to be grasped. He had everything, Jesus, didn't he? He had everything. He had community with the Holy Spirit and with the Father in heaven. He had all the glories of heaven, the perfection of heaven, the adoration, the angelic hosts. He had everything. Everything was perfect, but he gave it up. He gave it up for us. He gave it up for me. He gave it up for you. Isn't that amazing? He gave it up for us. The ultimate expression of the most costly identification with the needs of others in history. I honestly believe that. If you've got all that, you've got a lot to give up. The most costly. Costly because he went to the cross, folks. He went to the cross for you and for me. So compassion leads to action, action by God. It's leads to action by us. Okay, point two. A compassion leads to bringing in the kingdom. Now, last week, Chris spoke really well about growing in celebration, and he started his talk by referring to the Lord's Prayer. He said... Um, The disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus said, okay, I will. Our Father, who's in heaven, praise be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is what Jesus began when he came and his reign started when he came 2,000 years ago. He began the restoration of God's will being done on earth 
as it is in heaven. And uh, Jesus said, when he started his ministry, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Those are the signs of the coming kingdom, aren't they? They're the signs, actually, of the current kingdom. It's what Jesus did. He went around doing that stuff. It says in Matthew 4.23, he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. These are signs of the kingdom, the coming kingdom, the current kingdom. It is among us, he says. The kingdom of God is among you. It says in Acts, looking back on Jesus' ministry, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed, for God was with him. So in doing good and in responding with compassion to the needs of others, we ourselves are demonstrating and advancing the kingdom. And that's what we should be doing, guys. We should be building the kingdom, just as Jesus did. As Jesus' followers, we might say we have a responsibility to bring in the kingdom just as he did, to do the sorts of things he was doing. So right at the beginning of the Bible, we see a fantastic picture of creation, don't we? Genesis 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth, and he made it perfect, And he said it was very good. And we know what happened, don't we? Sin came, corruption came, the whole thing was spoilt. But if we go right to the end of the Bible, to the penultimate book, Revelation 21, it says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see this picture of a man walking with God in the garden. And in Revelation 21, the penultimate book of the Bible, we see it's restored. His dwelling place is among the people. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. God's mission, and this is what the Bible is all about, is to restore the new heavens and the new earth. He created it perfect, sin corrupted it, but look at the end. John was talking about the end, when we'll see him face to face. We'll see him face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. It'll be perfect. It'll be as he created it at the beginning, a new version of it, but it'll be perfect. His mission is to restore everything back to what it was, to recreate the perfect heavens and earth. So Revelation 21 is great, but... Um, I found this poem the other day which kind of expands on it. It's like a picture of that new heavens and new earth. And it says this. Just bear with me. It's a, it's a poem. Uh, and uh, it's not exact, an exact uh, replication or, or, of, what, of what it's going to be like. But I think it's a great description of things in the new heaven and the new earth. It was 8 o'clock on, in the morning. And I saw a new city coming down from the heavens. I saw a teenager leaping out of bed with joy laughing with the freshness of the morning. I saw elderly ladies skipping down the roads. (laughs) I saw children paddling in the local river. I saw a football match in the park. And the teams were mixed people from every people group. There were asylum seekers and taxi drivers, policemen and prisoners, pensioners, and, this was extraordinary, politicians, people from... (laughs) 
every race and class, playing and laughing in the sun. I saw a street party where people were eating and dancing because there was hope again. And I looked across, I saw a community of hope, a community of grace, a community of warmth. In the clearness of the morning, I looked. There was no more asthma, no more unwanted pregnancies, no more debt, no more violence, no more overcrowding. The rivers were flowing with crystal clear water. There were no needles and drugs in the park, no more sorrow of family breakdown, no more poverty, no more need, no unemployment, no hopelessness, no sadness or tears, only joy and laughter, no discrimination, no drunken clubbing, no threats, no fears, lots of people climbing trees. I'm just going to add that in there for Tommy. The dividing walls were gone. Families and neighbours were restored. No more rubbish, no dealers, no guns, no knives, no racial tension. Just one harmonious mix of people. Now, that's what it's going to be like, folks. (laughs) Isn't it exciting? It's where we're going. We should be a grateful people. We should be a grateful people. It's the end point of the kingdom that Jesus initiated 2,000 years ago. So anything we can do to bring that stuff in, we should be doing now. We should be building the kingdom, as Jesus did. Uh, That's my second point. Compassion leads to bringing in the kingdom. Okay, point three. It's all about love. I find this quite hard to read, to be honest. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If we close our hearts to the needs of others, how can God's love abide in us? That's quite strong, isn't it? Listen to this. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now that's my plea to us today, as we want to grow in compassion. Let us not love in word or in talk only, but in deed and in truth. Now listen to how he says that. He says, little children. He doesn't say, you idiots. <laughs> you, you're a load of rubbish, you guys. He doesn't. He lovingly and graciously says, come on, guys. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John's, can we get John's heart? He's not kind of scolding us. He's encouraging us. And that's what I want to do as well. Okay, so last time I spoke, I mentioned um, a woman called Mother Teresa. People know about Mother Teresa. Uh, she was uh, born in Albania to a fairly wealthy family. Um, but uh, in 1946, she had a call from God to... Uh, give all that up and follow Christ into the slums of Calcutta. She did a nursing course and then gave up her nun's clothing, which she had a habit of wearing. (laughs) Pause for applause. Deciding instead to wear the simple sari and sandals worn by the women she'd be living among. She moved into a small rented hovel in the slums of Calcutta, just on her own to start with. 
The first year was particularly hard. She had no income, no way of obtaining food other than by begging herself. She was often tempted to return to convent life. By 1950, four years later, she started an organisation called the Mission of Charity, a congregation dedicated to caring for the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, the unwanted, the unloved, the uncared for. In 1979, it grew very, very quickly. In 1979, she received the Nobel Peace Prize. But rather than accepting the uh, banquet where the prizes are giving out, which costs $192,000, she said, no, that $192,000 is going to the slums, going to the poor people. She didn't go, she didn't allow them to have a banquet in her honour. At the time of her death in 1997, the missionaries of charity had over 4,000 sisters operating 610 missions in 123 countries. She said this, How do you know, love, and serve God? How do you prove that you love him? In the family, the father proves his love by all he does for his children and his family. We prove our love for Jesus by what we do and who we are. By what we do and who we are. Let's not love uh, in anything other than in deeds and in truth. Okay? As it says in John. Well, not everyone agrees with um, uh, all of um, Mother Teresa's theology. And I just want to make this point. Theology is important, but if you love God and if you are filled with God's love for other people, you don't have to have perfect theology to do amazing things for God. And there'll be differences of opinion about some aspects of theology in this room, and that's fine. And theology is important. We want to get it right. But we, you don't have to have perfect theology. You don't have to agree with everything in every way to do amazing things for God. That is the history of people who have done amazing things for God. But theology is important, and we preach it here carefully. And we want people to understand what the Bible says, of course. Don't misunderstand me. Okay, we're going to listen uh, and watch a, a video now. And it's uh, a guy, the guy that's speaking is a guy called Father Greg Boyle. Uh, and 30 years ago or so, he founded an organization, an organization called Homeboy Industries, dedicated to helping gang members and people with drug addictions uh, to really recover and find their place in society again. It's now the largest gang intervention, rehab, and reentry program in the world. In the clip, he's speaking uh, at a graduation ceremony in Pepperdine University, which is a Christian university, actually, in California. And in the video, he refers to people in the program that he's, the programs that he's running in homeboy industries as homies because they're homeboy people. So let's uh, take a look at the It's been the video. privilege of my life for 30 years to have been taught everything of value by gang members. And in the last few years, they've taught me how to text, and so I'm really grateful to them because I find it sure beats the heck out of actually talking to people. And, and I'm pretty dexterous at it, uh, LOL and OMG and BTW. And the homies have taught me a new one, OHN, which apparently stands for, oh, hell no. 
and I've been using that one quite a bit lately. My alma mater, Gonzaga University, uh, called me and said uh, they were going to have a big talk on a Tuesday night with a thousand people. And so I, you know, uh, I said, sure. And they said, can you bring two homies with you? And I always pick homies who have never flown before just for the thrill of seeing gang members panicked in the sky. (laughs) I've never picked anybody more terrified of flying than this guy, Mario. He was just absolutely petrified. In fact, he was hyperventilating. (gasps) And we hadn't even boarded the plane yet. And then our, our flight crew arrives, and I see two flight attendants, females, and they both have very large cups of Starbucks coffee, and they're schlepping up the front steps. And Mario goes, when are we going to board the plane? I said, as soon as they sober up the pilots. <laughs> I should tell you that Mario, in our 30-year history at Homeboy, is the most tattooed individual who's ever worked there. His arms are all sleeved out, neck blackened with the name of his gang, head shaved, covered in tattoos forehead, cheeks, chin, eyelids that say the end so that when he's lying in his coffin, there's no doubt. (laughs) And so I'd never been in public with him and we're walking and people are like this and mothers are clutching their kids more closely. I'm thinking, wow, isn't that interesting? Because if you were to go to Homeboy on Monday and ask anybody there who's the kindest, most gentle soul who works there, they won't say me, they'll say Mario. He sells baked goods at the counter at our cafe. He's proof that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. So the nighttime talk comes and it's a thousand people and I invite them up to share their stories in front of all these people for five minutes each. They were terrified, but they did a good job. And honest to God, if their stories had been flames, you'd have to keep your distance, otherwise you'd get scorched. I invite them up for Q&A, and, and I said, yes, ma'am, and a woman stands, and she says, yeah, I got a question, it's for Mario. First question out the gate. And Mario steps up to the microphone, he's a tall drink of water, skinny, and clutching the microphone, and he's terrified. Yes, And she says, well, you say you're a father and you have a son and a daughter who are about to enter their teenage years. What advice do you give them? What wisdom do you impart to them? And Mario clutches his microphone and he's just terrified and he's trembling and he's getting a hernia trying to come up with whatever the hell he's going to say when finally he blurts out, I just... And he stops... And he retreats back to his microphone-clutching, terrified retreat. But he wants to get this whole sentence out. I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence. Until the woman who asked the question stands, and now it's her turn to cry. And she says, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you. (coughs) You are loving. You are kind. You are gentle. You are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand total perfect strangers stand and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hand so overwhelmed with emotion that this room full of people strangers had returned him to himself and they were returned to themselves 
and I think you go from here to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop and you stand with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away and you stand with those whose dignity has been denied and you stand with those whose burdens are more than they can bear and you stand with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless make those voices heard There's a great example of compassion there, isn't there? And I love some of the stuff he said there. You know, you go here and stand with the demonized, so the demonizing will stop. Stand with the disposable, so the day will come when we stop throwing people away. Stand with those whose dignity has been denied. Stand with those whose burdens are more than they can bear. Stand with the poor and the powerless. Make those voices heard. In other words, bring people out of the shadows to find all that they were meant to be and all that they were meant to be doing. Isn't that a great challenge to us as Christians? Uh, to, as we want to demonstrate the compassion of God, let's show compassion to those voiceless ones. It's a reflection of God's heart. Okay, so that's point three. It's all about love. Okay, let's move on to application. And the first point of application is get his heart. I'm sure many of us were here a few weeks ago when Mike Betts, Uh, was talking to us about Acts of Courage. He was talking about Acts 4.13. And the story there is that uh, Peter and John have uh, prayed for someone, they got healed. And the religious leaders don't know what to do about it. They think, wow, this is strange, we can't have this going on. So they tell them to stop praying. And Peter and John, filled with boldness, saying, well, we can't do that. God's asked us to do that, so we can't stop. And this is what it says in Acts 4.13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. So this is point one. How do we get more boldness, as Mike was saying, or compassion, as I'm saying today? How do we get those things? We need to be with Jesus. We need to be with Jesus. It's quite simple, really. And we've got some great opportunities to be with Jesus this week, haven't we? In the week of prayer, tonight there's an opportunity to gather together and be with Jesus. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, in the midst. Not distant, in the midst. I I felt felt God's presence wonderfully this morning. I felt his fatherly presence, his fatherly presence. You know, we were rightly giving him adoration and praise And I felt him saying back to us, you know, I love you. (laughs) You're my children. I I want to uh, let you balm in my fatherly presence. That's that's the God he is, isn't it? That's the God he is. So in praise and worship, we we get in his presence. Corporately in prayer, we can get into his presence. Um, But also, Jesus often went up to the mountain to pray on his own. And we can do that too, can't we? We have times with God on our own, being in his presence. It says this in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we bathe in his presence, as we contemplate him through doing these things, we are being transformed. 
into his image. Isn't that fantastic? So that's point one. Let's be with Jesus to get his heart. Point two, uh, just do it. Just do it. So I um, didn't used to like the book of James. Um, (laughs) It's not a good thing to say, is it, really? But I've actually got to love the book of James. I love the book of James because it is so practical and so to the point, and it stirs us to action. This is what it says in James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says they have faith... But don't have works. Can that faith save them? Or if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things they need, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's not saying you do these things to be saved. But he is saying, if you don't do these things, are you sure you're saved? (laughs) Because if you're saved you have really understood the grace of God as it applies to you, the compassion of God, then surely you'll want to do these things. Do you see what I mean? This is why I love James. Well, simple acts can have big consequences. And uh, I just want to tell you a brief story about Desmond Tutu. People know that name, Desmond Tutu. He's the former Archbishop of Cape Town and the first ever black African to hold that position. And after Nelson Mandela became president in South Africa, the end of apartheid, Tutu became the chair of something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the idea of that, and it was a great thing to try to do, was to bring healing and reconciliation to the different warring parties over apartheid, the abuses that had taken place. And uh, it was recognized as a very powerful instrument to do that. Well, Tutu was asked, what, what, what is the most kind of defining moment of your life? And he said this, oh, that's easy. When I was nine, I was walking along the pavement with my mum, uh, and we saw this, this tall white guy coming the other way. Now, in South Africa at that time in apartheid, it was a requirement that if you were a black person on the street and you saw a white person coming towards you, you had to step off the pavement into the gutter and let the white person pass, and you had to nod in respect to them. That was apartheid. It was evil, evil, horrible. But that's what it was like. That was the law. And he remembers he was walking down the pavement. He saw this tall white guy coming towards him. But before he and his mum had stepped off the pavement, the tall white guy stepped off the pavement and let them pass. And he nodded to them, a sign of respect. And Tutu said this, Well, it says it changed Tutu's life. When his mother told him that uh, it was an Anglican uh, bishop who had done that, who had stepped off the sidewalk, and that he was a man of God, Tutu said he found his calling. When she told me he was an Anglican priest, I decided there and then I wanted to be an Anglican priest too. And what is more, I wanted to be a man of God. So simple gesture, really simple, profound impact. Now, this is what we can do, guys. This is the exciting, isn't it? We can do simple things that can have profound impact. We can all do that, can't we? We can all do that. Uh, Mother Mother Teresa said this, "Not, not all of us can do great things, but all of us can do small things with great love. Isn't that good? 
When Mike Betts was here, he urged us to do small acts of courage in response to the Spirit's prompting. And he said to us, and I want to say the same to us today, are we up for that kind of adventure? I want to be part of a church that responds to God so that we have story after story after story of responses to acts of courage, to acts of kindness. That's what Mike said. That's what I say. I want to be part of a church like that. Don't you? Yes. Don't you? Wouldn't it be fantastic if on a Sunday morning there was a queue of people here saying, well, I've got a story, I've got a testimony. This week uh, I did a small act of courage or compassion for someone and this happened. And there are about uh, 300 or so uh, adults in this church. And if we each went away from here and we did three acts of courage or compassion, just simple things, that would be nearly a thousand acts of courage or compassion. And I bet you that we would have at least 100 stories out of that. That's only 10% of responses to our kindness, to our compassion, to our courage. Isn't that fantastic? Why don't we do it, guys? Why don't we do it? I don't want to um, come across as, uh, you know, ungracious in this, um, but I do want to stir us. I want to stir myself. (laughs) If we do simple things for other people out of compassion, we will have an impact on this town. So talking about the building... um, We could have uh, built a purpose-built building uh, on the Ransoms Europark site, couldn't we? Next to all those garages, Land Rover, Jaguar and Audi, and we could have had Hope Church at the end there. And we could have had a purpose-built building. But God didn't give us that. He gave us the Odeon at the end of the high street. And I I don't know if you spent any time down there recently, but I've, I've spent a bit of time down there. And... It is surrounded, that building, with people in the most great need. There are drug addicts. You can see them going in and out of the loos and stuff. There are prostitutes. There are homeless people. There are people down the street who don't have anything to do during the day at all. Uh, I absolutely know that God has put us there so that we can bless those people. Yeah? Do you agree? Um, So as a church, as a movement, we uh, agree with um, the idea of of the prophetic gifting. And there's a guy called Adrian Horner, who's a friend of ours in the church, who runs a church up in Kettering, who's got this prophetic gifting. And he was with us at the very first meeting we had in, in the Odeon. And so he said this. Sometimes in, in, in a new building, we want the building to look really smart. And in doing that, we can alienate some people. And I thought there were some homeless. Where are the homeless going to find a place? They don't necessarily need what we would choose. Actually, there are other things that they would need. And I saw families that have been broken and reconciliation. Now, there's a gospel reconciliation. He's talking about salvation, being reconciled to God. Um, But also a reconciliation where kids and fathers and mothers are torn apart. Would Hope Church be such a place? It almost becomes a community hub. You can have worship centres. You can have glorious, God-focused, Jesus-lifted-high worship, spirit-saturated. But then we all go home to our places and the community is not touched. May you know an anointing to touch the community, to welcome the community. Thinking of Jesus, he seemed to go where the broken were, He could have said, come to the synagogue. 
I'll see you on a Saturday. Actually, no. He left the synagogue. And he went to the well. He went to the funeral. He went to the streets. He went to the people who were hurting. And this is what he said, Adrian. He said, I want to bless God's heart in you, Hope Church. And I want us to be blessed with God's heart. And if we're blessed with God's heart, we will be moved to acts of compassion, won't we? Acts of compassion and acts of courage. So, you know, what the, the, quest, the final question really is, what are we going to do? What are we going to do in response to this? It's not easy. You know, I'm talking to myself here. It's not easy. You know, I, I need you to help me and encourage me in these things. And you need me. And we both need God. <laughs> we do. But if we come to God with sincere hearts and we're passionate about these things, he will be with us. He will. I know he will. Mother Teresa says this, Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow has not yet come. We only have today. Let's begin. That's what Mother Teresa says. So what I'd like us to do is begin now. Could I ask us to stand and to pray together? Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.